We had to get one more podcast out there before the new year. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about New Year's resolutions as I've been working on this podcast. And I'm going to throw this out there, maybe to hold myself a little extra accountable. But I think we can hit 200 by the end of 2023. Is that too ambitious? It's taken a little over two years, almost three years to do 100. I think it's doable. So I'm saying it here on the last podcast of 2022. Come January 1st of 2024, we will be at 200 podcasts. So stay tuned. Hopefully you guys aren't sick of my voice yet because we've got another batch of podcasts to get through. That being said, this was an interesting podcast. Our guest is an interesting guy. He is a lecturer at Cal Poly Humboldt. He co-hosts a couple different podcasts. He's actually written a book off of one of his podcasts. I'm interested to see what you guys think. So for the last time in 2022, please give it up for our guest, Dr. Aaron Donaldson. It's just totally different. I mean, Abraham Lincoln never saw a microphone in his life, so the guy was a shouter. And um, that's just a very different way to communicate. <laughs> it does put it into perspective when you say it like that, right? Yeah. One of his best friends said he sounded like a braying mule when he spoke. It was not four score and seven. It was four score and seven years ago. <laughs> because otherwise, nobody can hear you. Well, we've come a long way from somebody standing up on top of the soapbox, right? Um, yes and no, right? <laughs> I feel like... The, the soapbox is uh, just bigger and more proximate, I guess. Yeah, but it's Everybody does have the ability now to reach really anyone you want to. You go on Twitter, you could just throw out your whatever mind ideas you have out mm -hmm. into the ether. Mm -hmm. It's always been true. Like, we've always been streaming. It's just life. We're just living life. That's what that is. But the audience has exploded. And that, you know... Culture and social practice are very proximate things. What's normal for one group of people can be very aberrant for other people. So once you start expanding that audience, then possibilities really go up. Yeah. Did you have a hard time just articulating yourself when you brought out the microphone and started doing that? Or was it just getting comfortable having that thing right in front of you? Yeah. Well, I uh, did a bunch of music, played some punk rock music, and microphones are part of that. And um, podcasting is very different because you're not leaping around and out of air all the time. And so it's just a lot more comfortable. When I really started podcast, I, I did a solo show for a long time where I did some of the debate stuff that I'm interested in. And then when the Alien Movie Project started, you know, Kate and I really just enjoyed the kind of conversational space that podcasting sets up. And there too, microphones are fun. They're just fun. You can do dumb things with microphones. You can make little sound effects with microphone. I don't know, just fun stuff. And Kate being your wife, who you Kate started the my, project yeah, with. Yeah, I say she's my, she's my best friend. She's my wife. She's a professional wedding photographer. Uh, she does a whole lot of amazing stuff. And when I give the whole speech about what the Alien Movie Project is all about, I basically tell people that, um, in my words, she is really interested and good at like exploring the ways that things like you know position of the camera the postures of the people and the bodies 
and things like light and color communicate home and friendship and love and stuff like that. Those are all pretty important things. And um, she really likes watching movies with her sister, with me, just watching movies with people. We get in trouble for talking at the movies a lot. Uh, I will defend people who talk in the movie theater. I am that terrible of a person, I suppose. Um, you know, and so she and I really, um, you know, I said I had to do a research project and I'm like, this is what I think I'm going to do. And she's like, that sounds fun. And we really um, appreciated the opportunity to sit down and talk together just alone for about something, you know, a bit like movies doesn't really matter. It's just we really kicked it off that way. So what did that desire for this research project arise from? Um, I uh, finished my PhD at the University of Denver, and I had to start a research, um, you know, kind of project of some sort. And I was a debate coach, and that's what I really saw myself doing for most of my life. And I was like, you know, no matter what, I'm going to stick to coaching, speech, and debate. And no matter what is big phrase with lots of things you don't anticipate coming. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I may go back to that and I, I hope I do someday, but um, I, I always knew it may not be forever. And a, a wonderful friend of mine, uh, Michael Lechuga, he went to graduate school with me. Um, he studies what are called alien affects. You can, it's just a little branch of like the research I've encountered. Um, what do aliens feel like? And who gets to tell us what an alien feels like? Uh, we could talk more about that later. His research is just incredible. He and I spent a whole lot of time just kind of talking about alienhood in general. And for me, movies are just really important. I just love movies. I, I've watched so many of them. I've spent so much. I have a huge imagination. I like to play with toys and write stories and do D&D &D and all that nonsense, you know. And movies inform all sorts of parts of my life. And I'm also just interested in how it informs everybody else's life. You know, it's like there are movies that I've never seen that inform people that are very important in my life, like my dentist or my surgeon or the bus driver or literally anybody. Right. Uh, so I was like, movies seem to be important. Alienhood is connecting to debate in a lot of important ways uh, and then branching off in a new way. So I just kind of saw it as a real interesting way to go forward. Podcasting was a part of it when I did my master's research. I say that um, the Brain Science Podcast, especially by Dr. Ginger Campbell, uh, showed me that if you put experts in a room and have them talk, then the huge words are far less intimidating. If you just read the big word on the page, it stares you down and makes you walk out the room feeling like an idiot. But if you can hear two people that really appreciate and understand the word just using it in conversation and themselves slipping up when they try to say it, it really demystifies the stuff and as a communication professor you know at that point wannabe uh, that's what I was like I think I can do that I think I can bring podcasting and alienhood and cinema together to just start learning about something that I think is pretty significant and had this idea of alienhood and what that was had that been on your radar before making this decision yeah the bigger container that alienhood is in is something called otherness and otherness is um, how we make sense of other people. What, what are other people around us thinking? What are they doing? Who are they? What do they want? Um, it's um, a cognitive phenomenon. Part of my work at the University of Oregon for my master's program was like, how do I make sense of another person? 
So I tell folks that very generally concepts like meta perceptions are trying to unpack what I think you think of me. And that is really important when we socialize and it's completely made up and it feels really persuasive. It feels like I have some understanding of whether we are understanding each other. That makes sense. Um, so otherness is a very big picture uh, question of like, do we see each other as we are? Uh, as a debate educator, that's something I did throughout my life. That's what brought me to academia. That's so important. Most of our arguing is the result of me thinking I'm over here and you are over here and you thinking something completely different. And that means we are not going to agree until we sort that out. And that's um, not m all of our disagreements, but that's a big part of it. And I was just like, communication is really important in our, cap our ability to make sense of the world. Otherness is a very important example to me as a debate coach in terms of just like, how do I make sense of you? How do you make sense of me? And alienhood is a very specific lane within that picture within cinema, right? So like debate and public speaking is one way that I take this. Ethics is a big part of what I do, tying all of this together. Uh, and this was just kind of a, a mass media wave to it. Hard to avoid the movies, you know? And I feel like lots of people like to talk about the movies. Bell Hooks' book, Real to Real, is important, and she's like, movies make culture, so. <laughs> it definitely has a huge impact on culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, going to the movies, talking about movies with your friends. Oh, I saw this. Mm -hmm. You should watch this. Yes. Hooks says rituals of inclusion and belonging come from the content of the movies and the social practice of going to the Both. Can you do me a favor? Just pull that in. Keep just moving you can, a little closer. Yeah, you to can it. pull that too. You're not going to break his hand. Okay. Um, I move when I communicate. <laughs> that's, and that's not, not a bad good thing for podcasting. <laughs> and so all of this ties into the Alien Movie Project. And you said you had a little spiel that you normally tell people. Mm. What is that? How would you define what your project was? It's a you know the spiel is like a job talk. I've got pretty cool little slides if I do say so myself. And um, it's 45 minutes to an hour where I just show you pictures of the books that I use to define rhetoric. And some of the cognitive questions I'm asking in terms of how the ways we communicate and the ways that we see intersect. When I say see, I mean just more like understand things. Visual metaphor, but it's a bigger picture concept. Um, and so the job talk is me just defining some of those terms very broadly and then introducing what we found with the podcast. So the podcast, we did weekly content for about 91 weeks uh, was our ability to run. I always look at how many episodes people produce and how consistently they produce episodes. And at some point, there's just profound respect for people that do a thing consistently forever because it's hard, as I'm sure you know. And Yeah, you're preaching to the choir over here. <laughs> Assuming you understand completely what I'm talking about, you know, it's, it's not easy. And this was a very specific question whereby we would find a movie and I would spend a week you know, cutting all the cards I can, doing all the research I can about that movie and picking the conversations that to me are the most illuminating. And then we would talk about the movie and edit the episode together and put the episode out and move on to the next movie and watch the movie and cut the cards. And it's a lot. Um, we were able to do about 52 episodes of that. And uh, then we looked back and then we did another 40 something episodes and then we stopped and we want to keep going. We just don't have a space nearly as cool as this one or uh, the time is the real big one to do it uh, for both of us. You know, when, when she's doing her thing, I'm with the kid. When I'm doing my thing, she's with the kid. We just trade off. It's hard to get us both together to do it. 
Um, and so, you know, debate uh, kind of stepped out of my life for a minute. We could not produce content, but I had all this research. And so the job talk is me just being like, here are the big picture themes that I'm interested in from all of this. And um, if anyone is interested, here's 91 episodes of Alienhood stuff that you could go back and pick any of the threads that we're talking about and ask some of those questions and do more. And did you go into that project? I mean, what was the lens that you were looking at each of these movies through? Did you have a prescribed one? It seemed like intersectional feminism popped up a few times in oh, your book. Oh, definitively. Um, the, the, per, the perspectives I use to define rhetoric um, are... First, Bell Hooks, Real to Real, really important book. For her, rhetoric and the ways that we make sense out of performed meaning are fundamentally questions of power. There's no neutral communication. Um, if it's a ritual of inclusion or belonging, she says it matters. If it's a question of difference, it really, really, really matters, and it can be so subtle and so unintentional. Our intentions matter, but hardly at all with some of this stuff. And so, you know, she is, um, you know, Gloria Watkins may have died, but I say Bell Hooks lives forever. She's an intersectional feminist uh, through and through in that dominator culture is her way of describing all of those lenses. And that really informs what I do. Kenneth Burke, not an intersectional feminist. He's just a kind of classic Marxist guy that looks at Rhetoric is what he calls the dancing of an attitude. We're not trading signs. We're translating each other's performances. That's a fundamentally different way to think of communication. Aristotle puts meaning in a box called a word, and I give you the word, and you open the word, and meaning comes out, and that's how you understand meaning. Burke says that I move around and flap my body, and you you perceive those movements in your body's histories of flapping help you understand what I mean. And, the you know, for him, rhetoric is a question of capability and power is linked into that, you know. So Kenneth Burke is writing when we're sending people to the moon, which is pretty cool because we're doing that right now. And Apollo's still down there being like, can't catch us. We're still ahead of you. Uh, for him, it's like a moon race, but also the threat of nuclear annihilation, and all that matters is the politics. The missile doesn't care. The physics don't care. The math doesn't care. It's just, why are we shooting this missile into the stars, you know? And so he's not asking intersectional feminist questions, but he's asking existential questions. He doesn't have the foresight to apply what he knows to, like, his own whiteness or his own masculinity. And he definitely should have because his books just reek of his privilege in a lot of negative ways. Um, and so those are the two perspectives I take on rhetoric, and they're intrinsically about power and i think that's important with cinema i tell people it's the most profitable real estate on the planet men in black is something like sixteen thousand dollars per second and it's like a two-hour movie you how can... crazy is that that's such a large number it's a lot and when you sit there and watch that movie and say ray-ban every single time it shows up you realize that that is a massive investment that's a huge huge investment and it can be a fleeting minute in a movie but if it's in Will Smith's hands, you know, even before the Oscar slap, it was really significant. And now it's significant. You know, it's it's movies are the power brokers, um, you know, historically the power brokers that have defined cool in a lot of important ways. And people talk a lot about games and they should. I'm a big time gamer and I've spent my whole life playing games. But the whole the whole, you know, mark of achievement for a game is that it's cinematic. And that tells us that movies are defining that experience in meaningful ways. So 
I think it's really important to ask power questions when we look at movies. And how would you define intersectional feminism? What does that mean to you? I think that intersectional feminism, as it's used in the academy, is typically attributed to the Kambahi Women's Collective, um, a group of, as I understand it, primarily black lesbians that are looking at Marxist thought and being like, it's really cool, but it does not describe white supremacy. And that defines our existence anyway. And so, you know, it's got nothing on patriarchy. Marx is doing some good stuff to be like education describes our orientations of the world you know like if you are rich or poor this is not something that the cosmos cares about but it will define people in really stark ways you know marx is bringing all that up but he's not asking some of the fundamental questions about what we see when we see identity and what we you know experience when we experience identity and so the the typical intersections that um you know for me come through Hooks's descriptions of dominator culture are looking at you know histories of patriarchy, histories of white supremacy, histories of ableism, histories of um, capitalism and imperialism for sure, settler colonialism, emphatically in all caps, it gets ignored too much. Those are the intersections that typically matter. And so intersectional feminism and that Marxism, those were the lenses that you used going into this project? Or were those the lenses that you came out of the project with? Oh, and yeah, fun. Well, those are those are defining my perspectives of what I'm studying. And so I think they're baked in there. And I'm not going to, you know, say I'm going neutral, coming out, learning about power. Um, a really important scholar for my work is Bernadette Califel. Dr. Califel, I think, is still at Gonzaga, still doing really important work there. Uh, and I think that her book on monstrosity is... Uh, really important in a lot of ways in terms of who is a monster and who isn't a monster. Um, and I think that in that book, she takes on the ways that a monster can be really empowering and a monster can be something that the whole town is going to go try and kill in the night with a big heroic song, you know, and that matters. That really matters depending on who you are and what kind of monster you are. And so I think that if we're looking at alien movies, and again, Dr. Lechuga's work is really informing this too, we're looking at really spectacular constructions of others that require responses that are truly unprecedented. And again, there's no neutral there. There's no mere entertainment there. That is always deeply informing our, um, you know, understandings of who we are, our relationships to each other, our relationships to the land and the past. It's, yeah, that's all kind of part of it. And, and the more I study it, the more clear the, the the narratives become, if that makes sense. Like, I did not go looking for settler colonialism. Um, Dr. Lechuga and I both started studying this, and we spent years apart and came back together. And he's like, I just keep coming back to settler colonialism. And I'm like, I also keep coming back to settler colonialism. And, you know, then we start understanding indigenous futurities and the perspectives of settler colonialism and all of these indigenous scholars are like, yeah, yeah, you really ought to come back to those perspectives. If you're looking at, you know, settler stories of alienhood, which is what Hollywood primarily is. And we look at like, you know, Bollywood movies and we look at movies from Japan and settler colonialism is so broad in its, you know, representations and the way that it appears uh, I'm only really prepared to speak to our own particular brand of it. And the stuff that Hollywood does, you know, it's, it's always about that. And yet we don't think of it that way at all. 
it's it's interesting. You know, I have to remind people Superman is an alien, or and you know that says a lot about whiteness and masculinity. Um, but in the Superman movie, <laughs> The Man of Steel, one of my favorites, Zod is watching him sink into a pile of bones, telling him that the future has to be built on something. And Superman wants to save the bones because that's humanity. And I tell my students that under that is the state of Kansas. And under the state of Kansas, there's a pile of bones, too. And there are indigenous people that want that story to be the one that we're talking about. It's really subtle in the ways that we see it ignored and retranslated. And that I did not expect. You know, I didn't go looking for that. That, that took critical thinking for me to overlook my own kind of settler perspectives and see something that was pretty obvious in a lot of cinema. That settler colonial aspect seems to be a recurring theme in your book, mm -hmm. that it's apparent throughout various sci-fi movies. Would you say throughout cinema as a whole? Do you think that that's just ingrained in the movies that we're making, that we have made? One of the ways I describe this is I say that what really distinguishes settler colonialism from colonialism is ownership, both in form and in meaning of the land. So who owns the land and whose land is this? Those are two different questions. And settler colonialism, you know, colonialism will take, take you know, things from the land like resources and like tigers and fetishes and bring them back and look at them and own them. And that's old school colonialism. And settler colonialism is like, nope, my forefathers moved here. This is our land. We own this land. And, um, Ultimately, I say extraterrestrial movies, it's a relationship with the terrestrial. It's right there. It's in the title, which means that there's going to be Venn diagrams that are going to overlap right away when it comes to how we tell stories and how we describe things that we're trying to talk about. The, the understanding of someone crossing a boundary and crossing a border, coming onto our land and inhabiting our land, that's intrinsically a settler colonial question. And that was kind of a revelation for me. You know, that was definitely something that is maybe somewhat tautological to a lot of people. It seems like just stating the obvious. But when you realize that, uh, you know, just very generically that's going to overlap, it's there. The other angle that needs to be stated, you know, Dr. Lechuga's book about alien affects is really important, talking about how aliens are in our constitution alienhood is a, you know what we do with so-called legal and other aliens is in our constitution and it's shaped the ways that we describe our whole society in really meaningful ways um you know for him alien affects are described by power systems that want to shape borders that's who gets to define what an alien is and that is you know the national security state it is anyone interested in anything called border security. Uh, he, his research uncovered that um, the Predator drone system, the um, image interface for the Predator drone system, is the exact same image interface that came from the Predator franchise movie in terms of the corporation that made it. So the Predator franchise movie was faced with a problem. We want the Predator to see in heat vision, except Arnold Schwarzenegger is not warm enough to compete with the jungle. <laughs> the jungle's hot, and we cannot see a person in the jungle if we just use heat vision as we understand it. So they had to create what was called Predator vision, which is what we see in the movie, which is a way of, of representing a body on a screen. And um, Lechuga's research uncovers that the Department of Defense was pretty pumped by that, and they asked that company to help them work on their own ability to render bodies crossing borders in real time. 
And the Predator drone bears the name of that legacy. That's kind of part of the point where movie makers, he says, and border security officials come together to describe alienhood in material ways for entertainment or for so-called national security. These mutual groups share an interest and um, they come together. And when it comes to settler colonialism, those legacies are as basic as cowboys and Indians and good aliens and bad aliens. Addison Smith's article, E.T. Go Home, talks about how Hollywood just uses the same narrative as tropes to describe both of those things. Um, you see it throughout if you go looking. The idea of borders, do you think that that is a uniquely colonial invention? Or how, how does that come into play with the settler colonial aspect? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in my book, I say... You know, borders and bordering is something that is, you know, fundamentally human in that we're always describing boundaries where we stop and they start and I stop and you start. And that's intrinsically, again, drawing this question back to a deep well of what is otherness and how does it work? Um, settler colonialism, as I understand it, is not intrinsically nationalistic but the american brand definitely is where the settlers in question describe themselves as a nation they see themselves as a nation and um that is true of south africa that's true of a lot of places um on earth uh lorenzo Verancini, the settler colonial present and all the work that he's doing is the best place i go to for a lot of this to kind of describe what makes settler colonialism settler colonialism? He's the guy that set up the Settler Colonial Journal and is really just wrestling with this kind of question. He's asking these questions. I got to interview him uh, for one of my podcasts. Uh, he's asking these questions about uh, the internet now. He's looking at the term digital natives and asking if settler colonialism is a fundamental part of how we understand the world. What does it mean to be called a digital native? And what does that mean for our future? and how we're seen by the power brokers that control the internet and stuff like that. And when he said that, I was like, wow, that's a fascinating question that is, you know, very little to do with settler colonialism as I understand it in like the American sense or the South African sense. Just depends on how you conceive of it. Um, I'm particularly interested probably in the American brand of it. It seems like that's the lens that you use in your book. Yeah, that's the I mean, American focus. That's the one that to me is the most obvious, uh, the most chilling in a lot of ways you know i grew up just a huge history buff uh the civil war is something that infatuated me my whole life um and the way that it defines who we are i think is such an interesting question you can't understand the civil war without understanding the revolution so i love that stuff you know and everything that comes after it you know america is just it, it's a hot mess and it's a fascinating mess and it's a lot of things i want to be proud of and encouraged by and a lot of things I'm deeply ashamed of and wish we could say more clearly and out loud without being threatened. You feel like you can't do that now? Um, I think that it's pretty obvious that when it comes to prosecuting conversations, there are people that will show up with intersectional feminism and they're like calling people white supremacists and racists. And then there are people who will show up armed. They will definitely show up armed. They see this as a war. Um, I won't, but I have, um, especially women of color in the academy who have been stalked 
They've had to call the police and to convince the police that they're being stalked by very angry young men that may not mean anything at all, but if they do, it's just terrifying to really think about that. And I'm not going to say that I think that this is super likely or anything like that, but you can't ignore the fact that there are people out there that want to make this illegal and that see this as a, a war, you know, and in a lot of ways it is. In my book, I say our imagination has been colonized. And if you're going to decolonize that stuff or unsettle that stuff, um, you're going to talk about politics that really matter to people. And if we're taking the hood off of people that, you know, are like in the proverbial KKK, there's a reason they put that thing on and they're going to fight over that. And that's threatening. And so it's threatening. It's scary sometimes to, to bring this stuff up and talk about it. In most instances, I feel very, very, very safe, but I work with over 100 students a year and I don't know any of them, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you know, I think every teacher worries a little. The white privilege aspect is another power dynamic at play in your book mm. and the idea that correct me if i'm wrong from your understanding it seems like that is inherent in a lot of things not just the movies that we watch yeah whiteness is fundamental to understanding who we are and who they are and who i am i think that's all pretty clear and the who they are seems the most apparent in that the way the book is almost framed is that the idea of other is a distinction from white that it is white against the other there is no otherness outside of white you are either white or you are the other or you are the alien I'm and the so, other and alien are the same i'm so pumped that you read my book i just cannot get over well you sent it over to me i had to read it <laughs> i sent it to so many people and uh they say thank you and that's about all i ever hear from it but these questions are on point and i don't want to say that that's true for everything there are indigenous futurities out there and um, there are Afro-futurities out there. Dr. Risling Baldy, um, in a blog that uh, she wrote for, I think, Nerds of Color uh, a long time ago, and she does kind of roll her eyes every time people bring it up because it is very, very popular. She talks about how The Walking Dead is totally different for indigenous people. You know, Carl from The Walking Dead is her great-great-grandfather who had to hide under the sand and breathe through a reed so the white people wouldn't murder him. And she's told that she's alive because a white person was a bad shot. And that is their reality. The world ended for indigenous people. And there are survivors. And they are here. And she talks about how, from her view, The Walking Dead, you know, is a story about the white people showing up. That's who the zombies are. But that's not how the movie situates it at all. There's a, you know, uh, Hollywood diverse cast. But the lens of The Walking Dead is the lens of, you know, classical zombies in a lot of ways. And aliens, zombies, monsters, cyborgs, as we understand them in the settler popular imaginary, they've been described from the standpoint of whiteness from the very beginning. And overcoming that standpoint is expensive. It is very expensive if you want to make a movie that explicitly speaks out to whiteness and, like, unsettles everything we know about whiteness just gonna have a hard time getting a lot of people to spend money on that or want to be in that movie um and you're gonna have to gamble like i don't know 20 million to 100 million dollars to see if you can pull that thing off uh and it's hard it's not easy because whiteness is not a thing it changes you know my mom was uh adopted her father was italian and whether i'm white or not is a complex question because that's how whiteness works 
I tell people in Montana where I grew up, I was asked where, where am I from? Where are my people from all of the time? And now that I live in California, people say I'm a white guy. Uh, in both states, I've been greeted by indigenous people as an indigenous person. And that's been something that I've had to navigate that's awkward for me. And this is simply because I appear, we'd say Mediterranean. I don't know, you know, and I think that it's a, a, an example whereby in my own particular version of it, I have a kind of liminal experience with whiteness that is incredibly safe. And that is owed to my proximity to histories of whiteness. Joe Darda talks about how World War II Italians got to be white. That's where that happened. Boots Riley, and sorry to bother you, characters make the same observation, and I just love this. Uh, he didn't know that was out there, and I'm like, it's so funny when they point it out. Um, but it's like, you know, the way that whiteness um, operates is by a kind of way of looking, by a way of describing things. And that's definitely in the movies that we're looking at, for sure. That aspect of whiteness. Yeah, of, of who, who the alien is and who the alien isn't. Star Wars is probably the best example possible. Um, and now they're, they're trying to, like, reconcile themselves with those legacies. And it's so interesting. But in the book, I say at the end of the day, it's just who gets to wear the robes, who gets to use the force, who gets to fight and win the wars. And that's settler colonialism right there. Um, you know, is to be able to go places and live where you want and fight and win the war and be a soldier. And, you know, I think that whiteness in and of itself is a big part of it. But throughout the book, I say the cis, het, white, settler, patriarch. Is, that comes up a lot. That's the That's a recurring that, phrase. That's the guy. That's the guy, you know. Um, they call him John Wayne in some iterations, Clint Eastwood in other iterations, a lot of people are looking at Donald Trump and asking questions, but Joe Biden, for sure, it's it's the old movie dad and the new movie dad. Yeah, I mean, that's the lens that is sitting in positions of power to tell these stories. And that's the lens people bank on when it comes time to tell these stories. With Star Wars in particular, it caught me off guard when you said that that was a representation of settler colonialism. Yeah. You don't think that that's more a representation of just humanity at its core that we are this this warring people and we we see something and we take it and only recently are we grappling with the idea that we don't have to live that way oh that's interesting um i love the pacifism debate a lot and i became a pacifist because i studied the debate and um i do fundamentally reject the idea that at a core we are a warring species um i know there are extravagant contradictions to my argument <laughs> that's not lost on me, but um, MIT biologists say evolution prefers a snuggle to survive over a struggle to survive, and we snuggle in weird ways when we fight wars. It's interesting. Uh, Star Wars is settler colonial in fascinating ways whereby it's, you know, you look at this kind of young rural farm boy that goes off to become this, this Jedi, and he does so through the vocabulary of war, and we see all of the places that he goes and all the, the species that he meets and all the representations of otherness that he sees. Um, it's less of an intrinsic settler colonial story than, say, like Arrival or Contact or anything that's like they came here and here we are. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's cooked in there. Um, I don't know. I'm not really satisfied with the answer to that question. I think it's a fun one. I, like you could go back and ask like settler colonial questions about the Star Wars franchise and argue that it's 
you know, so fanciful, it's potentially dodging some of those. I don't know. Well, that no would be my argument. Home, no yeah. one has a home anywhere. And in you're Star seeing Wars, these right? people like, travel and encounter a diverse group of people, sometimes teaming up with them, sometimes fighting them. But I don't know. I, I read that in your passage and it just yeah. kind of it caught me off guard a little bit. I'm nodding emphatically to most of what you're saying. And I think that one of the notes that I would make that might help my case a little bit is that people do look at Star Wars quite a bit as what we call like a post-race movie. It's a movie that claims to be beyond race. My, my friend Casey says there's nobody in a Star Wars cantina being like, what is that? Who is, what is this? And, you know, like no one's flipping out. I always say in Star Trek, I need one person to be like, all my lights are flashing and I have no idea why. Like someone should be losing their cool. Um, but no, Star Wars is just like everyone understands that everyone is everyone and we're all everyone. But the, the we of Star Wars, especially the first three movies, is a bunch of white people. And there are almost no black characters besides the guy with the big red laser and Lando Calrissian. And um, that is arguably probably true in a lot of the ways that we go places and explore places and make homes and frame questions of home. One of the questions I asked with Avatar is what does it mean to watch Avatar on stolen land? Like the movie Avatar is about indigenous people rejecting the imperial colonialists. Don't we want to celebrate that? And it's like, yes, but you are celebrating that on stolen land. And the movie has nothing to tell us about that. It's not going to ask those questions. And that's not an intrinsically settler colonial story in that it's telling us to forget. But it is telling us a different version of reality without asking some of the fundamental questions about our own. Which is kind of what we like about fantasy. We want to go to a place where no one is different. We really want to do that because difference is pretty fundamental. And I don't know that Star Wars gets over that so much. I don't know. It might. It might. I felt like Avatar was your was your strongest comparison mm. with that idea because you do have that tangibility of, oh, this is almost like what happened in America. You have these people coming to this new place and kind of taking it over for what what the resources are that they want or they need. Right. I mean, I feel like it's pretty explicit as a correlation. You know, it seems to me like, and, and to a lot of folks that have written about it, uh, Reader's article I think is really good on this, where he's like, part of the getting over big quotes, which Risling Baldy laments and a lot of other folks lament, getting over settler colonial genocide is telling ourselves stories about how it turned out differently. Uh, but at the center of Avatar is still a white male soldier that goes into the body of another alien and apparently teaches him how to fight. I don't know. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, it's it's problematic, but it is also a very like convenient kind of storytelling for a society built on legacies of genocide. It's it is one thing to want to like just enjoy a story of like a proverbial underdog and celebrate that proverbial underdog. But if you have spent your entire, you know, society just wiping your feet on underdogs and like literally casting them in the most abjective spaces possible, celebrating that story is weird. And, and especially if we do it in really extravagant ways. Star Wars has such a fascinating land politics in that there is no land politics. And to me, it's like there's no race politics. There's no land politics and critical rhetoric. Anytime that we're like we've gotten over it or looked past it. These, the implication is we're probably defaulting to hegemonic lenses somehow. That's why if it seems like I'm hunting for a link here, it's because typically what we learn is if I'm not looking at it, I'm not thinking about it, then there's structures that are pretty deep in our storytelling that are going to frame us that way. 
I might try to dig more into this. This is a really fun question. And I think it's one that the book does not take up very much in terms of how, how settler colonialism in Star Wars works. What, what would you make of the argument that the lens of intersectional feminism and of that, that aspect of Marxism, that that could skew interpretations of these movies? Because instead of going in objectively, you almost have some inherent bias yeah. in the means that you're looking at. It's, and it, I, I'm pretty sure you referenced that obviously you couldn't read all of the papers that were produced on these movies. So that right. was the lens you focused on, right? Was right. Well, authors yeah. who had that transsectional feminist point of view. Yep. It strategically skews it. It strategically skews it. That it's, was intentional going in. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, there's no such thing in object of, in, of, you know, as objectivity when it comes to asking critical questions. Cannot objectively ask a critical question. Uh, even, you know, Einstein's going to say time itself is pretty relative when it comes to like describing what it is we are talking about. And if time itself really depends on how you're looking and when you look and who's looking and are they looking, and I'm no quantum physicist, but the stuff that they, you know, reveal about the status of matter and stuff really emphasizes that it could be real relative. What is real and what is not real could really depend on who's asking. And so from where I come from in critical rhetoric, just the way that I was trained, you, you cannot be objective. If you are objective, you're defaulting to just, you know, wh what is it that, that, that young kids are saying now? They say, the first thing you think is what society teaches you. The second thing you think is who you're, you're going to be or who you are. And that first impulse to ask a question does not come from nowhere. We can't unlearn everything to ask critical questions, you know? So as a debate coach, you know, we talk about what it means to cut cards and how you cut cards and what it means to, like, cut cards well. Okay, so you can cut cards, but do you cut good cards? And do you keep your cards? And do you file your cards? And can you interpret your cards when you apply them to your argument? When I'm looking at a movie for one week, and that movie is um, Paul, <laughs> right? Uh, that Seth Rogen movie about a friendly bro alien that comes down. I'm going to find like two articles and they're both going to be about bromances and, you know, because those are the people asking the questions. Uh, when I look at alien, it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles. And so as a debater, you've got to approach those two projects very differently. And it's in the latter case where it's like, I could be asking questions about lighting. I could be asking questions about sound. I really like sound politics. That's something I dip into a lot. There's all these other ways to go, but especially given my position as a researcher, cishet white settler patriarchy, I have to ask those questions because that's who I am. And that's going to inform the baseline of my questioning in a lot of ways. So Amy Madison has a book called um, Critical Ethnography, where she talks about how research is always an inherently political act because of the position of the researcher, the person asking the question. And, um, you know, that informs my book, too, in a lot of ways. And so when people say it biases it, it's like that is part of the, the strategic cut. That's, that's part of unlearning a lot of this stuff is to be like, where is it? You know, where is it informing us? And hopefully part of being a debate coach is understanding that just because you have one link argument, that doesn't mean you have a disadvantage. You need more than one link argument. And you need to realize that, especially if you go hunting for that link argument, 
you're going to need more than one link argument to make a disadvantage. There's a way to build a robust argument when we're trying to unlearn stuff. And so that that's kind of how I navigate that space when I have a, too much to do. No one's paying me to do this. It's just spare time stuff. I can't read everything. I'm like, what is out there? First, just what is out there? I spend a day or two just scrolling Google Scholar, scrolling every, you know, um, Nexus, Lexus, everything I can find that YouTube, definitely, you know, just uh, the old Internet Movie Database. We all have that one. Just doing everything we can to, to, to find the content that exists. And before I watch or read any of it, I just try to get the old bird's eye view. Sometimes I'll, I'll kind of categorize it and be like, a lot of people talk about this. And a lot of people are talking about that. Um, for the Superman stuff, I got real into it because I really wanted to write a, a paper about that. That was supposed to be a book chapter that's not in the book. So maybe the second edition. Um, it just depends on the title. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the practice. That's how you do critical rhetoric. If you're being objective, you're not being critical. So explain critical theory to me because I don't understand. Yeah. That, that when you said you can't ask an objective question about critical theory, that kind of caught me off guard. Yeah. Well, I dig it. I teach critical thinking. Um, and one of the things that's really important about understanding what it means to be any subject at all, any version of an I, is to realize that perspective is going to inform that very, very intrinsically. Where you sit and who you are fundamentally informs questions of what's possible. And, you know, between you and me, this table between us is pretty solid, but neutrinos are flying through the thing like it doesn't even exist. So is it real or not is a question of the arrangement of our molecules. And at what point, like we don't even touch the table, they say, our atoms just say, no, we're not going any closer. Um, and that's a very subjective thing. That's a very, very subjective thing. And Sweeney Madison's book, I think, is really great on this because she's like, as far as objectivity, this is me trying to translate, as far as objectivity is concerned, when we look at ob objectivity from a subjective space, we're going to define that as what is true for almost all of us. What is true for almost all of us? What do we see that is, like, if I throw a rock at your face and you throw a rock at my face, are we both upset about this? That You know, like, those kinds of questions can be asked. But that cannot be the whole story. Because um, what is true to some of us is arguably just as real. What does it mean to throw a rock at someone? That's a very different question than what's it feel like to get hit by one. And one of the metaphors I use a lot is as an old punk rocker and heavy metal fan, I've been kicked in the face in a mosh pit. And the fact that someone doesn't mean to do it matters. That definitely matters, but not a lot. Like the objective truth of my face being hit, that's important. And I definitely see that. And that's really key. Um, but at the same time, if they're doing that on purpose, and that's just how they like to be in the mosh pit, and those people exist, I know them. Um, and I reject them. Um, that's terrible. That's doing damage. That's harmful. That is a way of being with consequence that cannot be seen from the boot hitting the nose perspective. That's a question of ideology. That's a question of intent or, um, if you want lack of care or just recklessness even, you know? And here Kenneth Burke is really important where he's like this imagined dimension of culture is absurd in a lot of ways, but it's very real. It's very, very real. Something that's true for me will be not true for you, and we're both right about that. We're definitely both right about that. But our consequences will not be the same, and that's really meaningful. And so for Madison, Sweeney Madison says, 
The only way we can really understand human reality is to get the objective and the subjective at the same time. We have to get both at the same time. If you're just doing one part of the story, then you're never going to understand the perspective-based questions that are defining that story. And so as a critical theorist, everyone's like, they're just navel-gazing, they're just talking about whiteness all the time, and um, we're very prepared for that uh, argument. It's a very predictable way of dismissing theory. But at the end of the day, if you do the reading, definitely not. It's not what we're doing. That's what peer review is about, is if someone is like, you know, one of the examples in Star Wars is like um, Princess Leia has this really traumatic opening and everyone fixates on Luke Skywalker, right? I think this is a question of sexism. Other people are like, it's just the, the camera looking at Luke Skywalker. That's a kind of subjective question. Make sense? When we go looking at the kinds of questions women ask in movies and whether they know the answer to that question. In Men in Black, Tommy Lee Jones asks a lot of questions, but he knows the answer to every question he's asking. And he's the only one in the room that does, which makes his question very performative. It's a showboating thing. You know, like, do you have any idea what Foucault would say about this, Nick? And if you do, great. And if not, shame on you. You're whatever. He's showboating. He's being a jerk. And yet when women ask questions, they just fundamentally do not know. What is that? What's going on? What do we do? Like these questions are structurally ignorant and his questions are structurally empowering. That's not an, a subjective question. That is, I tell students, can you put a balcony here? Yes or no. That is a structural question. And we're doing necessarily, if we're doing our job well in critical rhetoric, we're trying to do both of those things. We're trying to ask standpoint questions from a position of who we are as a scholar and to connect them to broader questions of structure. We're trying to take the personal and explain how it is political. And if you can make that connection, that is critical theory. If it's just, here's what I think about this, that's nice, but that's not critical theory. And so if we're talking critical theory, we're talking structures of ideology, structures of ideology can't be objective. I've strayed so far from your question, Nick. I'm trying to walk my way back. Am I making any progress here? A little bit. I'm still I'm still a little confused. I understand the connection that might be there for critical theory because my understanding of that is pretty limited. Yeah. But for critical thinking in that realm, mm. isn't objectivity the the sole purpose of that? Isn't that how you find these objective truths and That's... understand how you truly feel is by Taking an objective, I mean, once you let a subjective view come into that, are you? Yeah. How, how do you quarrel with that? Here's a good example I use a lot, and it impacts me here in Humboldt County quite a bit, including this morning. <laughs> when my feet are really cold and I put them under lukewarm water, it hurts. Hurts. Feels hot. The temperature of that water, not high. But my nerves, because they are about degrees of difference, the way sense is made is always about gradation. And if you're at low grade and we leap to high grade, we're going to say that that's going to get us some gain. It's going to get us a peak and we don't like it. And um, what is pain and how does it work is a fascinating question for, you know, sense making. And I did a little of that a long time ago when I was at the U of O. And um, I think to answer your question, do all, is it all we want to know that like the temperature of the water or does it matter to know like, well, what temperature was your foot going in and how much did it fluctuate? Both of those are true. And so when I'm, when I'm saying we want to learn critical thinking, I want to know things that impact society. That's what I want to know. 
if it's um like is red real yes or no we can answer that question objectively if we can look at the rods in your eyes and your visual cortex and we can determine if you're colorblind in all of these different ways what does red mean how is that not in part of reality that's a fundamental part of reality and if all we ever fixate is on the objective then we're never going to know the whole story of who we are you know it's like Kenneth Burke likes to ask the question, how much of what matters to people is the stuff of culture? Just culture, mere culture. And he's like, well, it's questions of like, who are you and who am I and what are we doing right now and why are we doing these things and what do you have to do tomorrow and what did you do yesterday? He's like, according to Marx, if you have a frog that hops one way, if you put a different ideology in the frog, it's going to hop a different way. That's the power of ideology. It's going to change the way the frog hops. Does the universe objectively care about ideology? Does not. Does not. The cosmos has no way of rendering ideology. And what makes Marx significant is less his story about class war and all of that. Great. And more his lesson that ideology is fundamentally material and it impacts you at least so far as class is concerned. That seems pretty real. The, the universe has no substance for class, but we sure seem to care, you know? And so if we want to know who we are and what society is and how it's made, we have to know both sides of that question. That's critical thinking. To only look at one side of that question, that's not being critical. That's not doing the critical part. There's a lowercase critical, which is like the whole picture. I want to get as much of the picture as I can, the biggest version of the truth possible. And then there's what I call the capital C critical, which is like, who has the power? in that story. And that is a question of the self as well as the story that we're trying to look at. But don't don't you think that the aspect of it being critical thinking is predicated on the idea of objectivity? I mean, once once the in subjective some traditions. Yeah, right, wouldn't yeah, that be the in the enlightenment tradition for sure. But you think the current or at least your current interpretation allows for that subjective influence? Because when I hear critical thinking, I think okay, you have to separate yourself from whatever you're looking at and just take this objective stance right. to try to figure out what it is and what it isn't. There's a really cool book written by Antonio Damasio, and it's called Descartes' Error. And it's this idea, and Damasio is a very, very, very famous cognitive theorist. Um, Oliver Sacks is talking on the cover of the book about how important Damasio's work in describing critical theory. And when it comes to critical theory, they talk about how I, that's just a really difficult thing to find in the brain. And Descartes sees the self, I think, therefore I am. There's this thing called the cogito, the me that's thinking in there. And what we want to do with enlightenment is get away with or give up everything beyond that I and find just what is connected to that I. And this means turning off all of our feelings and all of our emotions and centering on mere rationality. And we call it mere rationality now because that's a very selective way of looking at the world. And when you look at um, the way that the brain works, at least, I is a loop, and that loop interacts with other loops that are outside the body. So the individual is one way of thinking of the world, and that seems to be where we're sitting with this kind of question. But there's this thing called the individual over here that says that there's no I in the center, and we're all very much interconnected 
in ways that are hard to see. And that is a fundamentally different way of just asking the question that you're asking about critical thinking. Those are two very different schools of thought. And what I will tell you is that just based on the research I've done, that model of thinking, the enlightenment model of thinking where it's like there are hard truths and that's the core of being matters. It really matters. No one's saying that stuff doesn't matter. Of course it matters. But it cannot answer fundamental questions for us. Another good person I look to on this is a guy named Stephen Toulmin. Uh, and this is argumentation scholarship. Stephen Toulmin was an MIT physicist who decoded Nazi um, like propaganda and war stuff during World War II. And he comes out of World War II uh, really worried about science. Him and Kenneth Burke had this in common. They're both like, whoa, science can do a lot of cool things, but we do terrible things with it sometimes, and I don't like that. And what Toulmin says is that the formal ways of arguing, the formal theory, the hard facts of life so-called that exist are, so far as most people are concerned, pretty true. Can't get around those. You drop a rock on my foot, it's going to freaking hurt. You turn my nerves off, suddenly it don't. And that's biology, and that's fundamental to who we are. And he's like, great, but what is friendship? When are you in love? Uh, what is a hero? Uh, what do we do with people that don't belong? These are really, really profound questions. And here, there's just no math equation. And if you make one, I'm really, really afraid of you. I'm terrified of who you are because you cannot boil all of those questions down to one way of being. Looking at the way language is structured is another really fascinating way to take this question on. Because... English in particular has a kind of famous legacy for being very linear, which means we like to focus on single things and we create hierarchies and orders and things so that we can go top to bottom or front to back and things like that. Other languages are much more event-driven or they can be much more directional. So a student in my class talks about how their language does not have a waterfall they have a word that describes water falling, mist rising, the kind of fish that can be within that particular area, depending on how deep it is. And there will be the name of the particular thing, which is kind of like what we do. So we have like Multnomah Falls. And um, I gave them that one. And they're like, well, that's kind of interesting because at least there it is. You have the falls, which is like a live kind of thing. And he's like, that's kind of like how it works in our language. And it's for, from a critical thinking standpoint. We can be like, well, there's one way to look at the world, and then there's a bunch of different ways to look at the world. Do we want to fixate on what's true for everyone at the expense of what is true only for some people, meaning large swaths of the world all over the place? I want to do both. And I think that at the end of the day, one of the things that people come back to a lot with critical thinking, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard, and it's going to be hard for two reasons. Number one, reading is hard. Research is hard. I don't like to cut cards. It's hard. Um, understanding facts is hard, but it's also hard because it's going to ask questions that really destabilize who we think we are. It should. It really should. If you're a white person and you encounter research on whiteness and you get angry, the good news is you are predictable. The bad news is hard learning now. This is some hard learning. Not fun, but, but if you see yourself as white, if your peers see you as white, if the police see you as white... It is really important that you understand what that means and know that getting upset is a predictable part of that. I experienced that. I talk about that in the book. It's fragility. You're taught to be fragile. Movies will reward fragile behavior constantly. Um, 
And I think that that is a fundamental part of who we are. I think that we, that we have to know that. I want to know how that works. I'm looking here in my notes because you just sparked something. Yeah, I saw that. I'm yeah. curious where it went. Yeah. <laughs> let me see if I can. Take a drink of water. Yeah, let me see if I can find my <laughs> thing. I, I took a, an egregious amount of notes on your book. I was, I'm I was, so pumped, Nick. Yeah, I read. I, I I'd come back anytime and talk to you about any of it. Yeah, absolutely. This is awesome. <laughs> um, it was about that whiteness aspect. Yeah. And oh god, it's here. Oh yes. So you say, and I quote: "Predictably, the mere mention of what of white acceptability has been shown to prompt blowback, especially but not always from individuals who classify themselves as white. White men have been shown to get disproportionately angry at the mm -hmm. onset of conversations about whiteness, and white women have been shown to often cry, mm -hmm. prompting any nearby white men to get concerned or even angry in their efforts to perhaps ride to the rescue." The general term scholars use to describe these kinds of especially negative interactions with an examination of white privilege is fragility, and fragile behavior can range from attitudes of indignation or evasion to outright hostility and violence. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a couple of different scholars talking at once. The first uh, one I'll pull on is um, Nakayama and Kryzek, and they have an article they wrote in 1994 called Strategic Whiteness that you, most people can find for free online. Hard to read. Quarterly journalist speech, not nice, but it's packed with peanuts, I say. If you can make it simpler and not get not lose anything in the article, you're famous as far as scholarship is concerned. Go for it. But their article, we read it in my class. It's pretty straightforward. And one of the, the questions that they tracked was just what happens when we ask people if they are white? What does that mean? And um, they found six different kinds of responses. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. One of them, it's just a color. It's just what color I am. Is another one. Uh, it's a nationality. means I'm from Ireland, from Canada, from the United States. Um, it's a couple of different things that they list. There's six of them. And when they did this study and they put it out, they're like, here's our research and here's how we did it and here are our findings. And since then, the... Google Scholar thing is like thousands of people have looked at this article and it replicates really, really well across space and through time in terms of the one thing that we take away is that the six forms are fairly robust and none of them want to look at whiteness. They are all dodging. They're all evading. They're all saying somehow let's not talk about what it actually means. And at some point in the class, someone's like, well, what does it mean? And we can talk about those histories of privilege and, you know, you know, it would mean talking about the KKK. It would mean talking about my wife's family in Norway. It would, you know, but that's not all it would mean. There's a big conversation there. But when the six ways that we respond are all some kind of a dodge, that is interesting. That tells us something. Um, one of the, the most robust responses they, they got was, I'm not playing. I'm not playing, a rejection. And they said that this comes in two forms, that particularly men seem to get angry and women cry. And that particular thread of that study has been pulled on by many people since. And a big part of understanding toxic masculinity, hegemonic masculinity, also ideal femininity and what it means to be either historically in our storytelling and the ways that we embody these stories is knowing that men are told that they're allowed to get angry and to yell and to shout and to, 
I have this thing I'm talking about now called the hegemonic masculinity three-step, or the aggrieved hegemonic masculinity three-step. I'm bad at naming things. A man is aggrieved. A man does violence. We do not blame the man for violence. We see this in all sorts of different forms, and it is intrinsically a masculine behavior, according to folks like Jackson Katz and Michael Kimmel. There's legacies of these stories. It's kind of John Wayne. He's not a fighter until why I oughta, and then he's going to knock your block off. Uh, and But then, nope, not his fault, though. He typically is not a fighter. He only fought because of that one time. There's a legacy, too, of ideal femininity. And um, here, Dr. Califel's work comes back, because in her writing on monstrosity, uh, she and several scholars that she detailed that talk about Nakayama and Kryzek and also others realize that that when white women cry, that is a very powerful performance. That's an incredibly powerful performance that evokes certain kinds of behavior. The whole flap about Karens and things like that right now is evoking a lot of this. And um, this doesn't mean it's not okay for women to cry and for men to get angry. We're not saying any of those things. We're just saying it's really weird that if I ask a room full of people what does it mean to be white, predictably since at least 1990, and we would argue before, we're going to get these results. And as a white guy, I was pissed when I read that because I read this in college and I was pissed and I saw the result. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm angry. Wait, that's me in the research. I'm in the I'm doing the thing that the research says I'm doing. And right there, I remember making a choice to be like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't. Why am I getting angry? What am I angry about? And I started really asking those hard questions about where that anger came from and what am I trying to protect and what am I upset about? And there's so much research on how to engage whiteness critically, you know, but that's what that's pulling on is to be like, and I'll say that I've seen this too. And my, my, my colleagues just incidentally, allegorically as a debate coach, weaker argument, but I've taught for a while in front of a lot of people. I've taught in Northern California. I've taught in Denver, Colorado. I taught in Eugene, Oregon, uh, Kennewick, Washington, Vancouver, Washington. I've moved all over the place at public schools, at private schools, at two-year schools. I coached at a uh, maximum security prison once. And whiteness conversations prompt fragile responses. This speaks to my experience. It speaks to my colleagues' experience. It's in the research one thing I try to say more and more and more is that in the book I say, this means I'm not intrinsically a terrible person. It means I have learned some things that I need to think about. And um, part of me looking at this media is trying to understand that. The The aspect of white women crying, you don't attribute that any of that to it just being a woman crying? That if you were to see a woman crying, you would be inclined yeah. to... Well, see what's going on. If you engage the research, and, and Califel's really good at this, she's like, if it's a Latino woman, she doesn't get treated the same way. If it's a black woman, she doesn't get treated the same way. If it's an indigenous woman, she doesn't get treated the same way. The, the women's tears prompt racialized responses. This, too, is pretty robust. And I think there it's a good example of where it's like, what is the objective question of at which point do people cry? Okay, fine. What does it mean to cry? Who can cry and when and how? Those are very important power questions that no one's sitting around enforcing the rules. No one's like, ha, 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 we'll make it so only white women can cry. That's not how it works. But there are definitely, definitely, and we know it because it's in our, our legal documents, it's in our religious documents, it's, it's everywhere we look. There's legacies of saying that, that certain performances are different than other performances and that certain ways of being are different than other ways of being. 
when you look at just the differences between masculinity and femininity, this is really, really important. Like, can, can men cry? You know, how come more men aren't crying? One of the questions I ask people that watch hip-hop videos is, has anyone seen Eminem roll around on a floor? I've never seen Eminem roll around on a floor. Most women hip-hop artists, they spend a lot of time rolling on floors. I've seen that happen. Why isn't Eminem rolling on floors? What's I didn't know on? anybody was rolling around on floors. Yeah, it's, it's a posture that you see in a particular era of hip-hop of that time, and this is coming from uh, gender, race, and class in the media, the Heinz text. That's like women position themselves provocatively and sexually. Men position themselves in positions of power and authority. That is both like who we are, I guess, because we see it everywhere, but also just weird. Like th those are just birds flapping in the woods. And the question is, why are they flapping that way? And why do we position ourselves that way? And I think that when it comes to white tears in particular, um, the research is sufficient for me to say that there's a meaningful difference there. And in that's, response. Yeah. In, in terms of how we respond to those tears. Like, we will overlook black tears a lot. That research is pretty robust, where it's like when black people cry, we tend to say they're either overreacting, or we say they're probably responsible for it somehow, or we'll say it's none of my business. I don't know that person, and it's none of my business. Um, you get different political responses depending on who's crying and when. Do you think any of that is changing? Because you do have that persona of the white Karen now mm -hmm. where there's this white woman overreacting and people just <laughs> right. kind of brush it off. Well, what uh, feminist scholars say is that uh, one of the things that, that scholarship is supposed to do is articulate something. And naming something a Karen is a good example of articulation. Like toxic masculinity was not a thing until someone described it. And when they describe it and they give us the recipe, then I can be like, I don't want to be that person anymore. Thank you, critical consciousness, for helping me you know, look at my life and say, I don't want to do this, 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 or this. And I would say that it's hard to make changes in a society that does not value the scholarship. As a debate coach, one of the things that really frustrates me a lot is that if it says Journal of Science and Science Institute, it's going to carry a lot of weight in an argument. And if it's like the quarterly journal of speech, everyone's going to be like, well, that's just the quarterly journal of speech. I'm like, you publish in it. Go ahead. Just put a, put a paper in there. And that's what I tell people. If they don't like the Nakayama and Kryzak article, just, just prove it false. All you have to do is prove it false. If you prove Nakayama and Kryzak false, you can work anywhere in the world because it is that important of a paper. And no one has, and many have tried. And I think one of the reasons we don't change is because we're pretty good at dismissing a lot of this research in particular. Uh, I love looking at the way that these kinds of evidence navigate and debate when they're in conversation with each other. That's one of the things in debate education that I really enjoyed watching. Um, and I would say also that, that there's a very strategic effort to silence a lot of this stuff. And that's clear. It's been shown. What so. would you make of the argument that a lot of it is biased, that that's why people are dismissive of it, is they hear yeah. toxic masculinity right. or these... Um, you know, feminine empowerment things that, oh, well, it's just people trying to create divides that aren't there. Yeah. They're trying to pit this racism as a bigger issue than it really is. As a debate educator, the first thing I say is if we're blaming the scholarship, it's probably not a great argument. <laughs> and that's a pretty easy way out to just be like, well, maybe all of the scholars are terrible people. <laughs> Has anyone thought about that? And it's like, yes, they have. And um, that's not how it works. You know, it's like, one of the things I love about th this idea is like all the feminists are in on it and they've all got this cabal and there's this feminist agenda and we have to beat it. And I'm like, feminists hate each other. They hate each other. 
they're not out there like with guns protesting each other's things. That's a very specific brand of other people. But feminists, if you do the reading, they radical feminists hate bell hooks, you know, bell hooks and Judith Butler. And like you could just go on and on. I say I've never heard a feminist taken down better than when another feminist is saying like this is why they're terrible. And that is how you make a living. That's the whole point. That's what critical theory is about, is disproving the leading scholarship and being like, I have reset, but you cannot make something up that everyone likes. It has to bear out through the research. We have to do the studies and pass the peer review, and everyone's like, well, a lot of those are faked. And I'm like, we could say that about all evidence, you know? But to and, be fair, some, I mean, peer review doesn't necessarily mean it no, carries weight. No, in a debate argument, though, it's definitely stronger than me just saying because I said so. And at the end of the day, I'm like, when we stack peer-reviewed articles up against each other, they're going to differ depending on where they're from. And there is a process for this. And there are professionals that navigate that process. And they manufacture knowledge. And people are like, well, I don't like the name toxic masculinity. I think they're mean. I think they just hate men. And, and they're satisfied with that. And as a debate educator, I will tell you, that is persuasive. It is a terrible argument. That feels good. It feels convincing because it means, well, I don't have to listen to any of these people anymore. But it's not critically responsive to the evidence that we have, you know? But if the evidence is subjective, how far can we go to trust that? It's subjective in that it speaks to um, perspective-based living, but it is structural. The critical theory is never just about me. It's always about structure. No one person gets to say this is what blackness means in Hollywood. We have to go studying it. And we see a pretty damning legacy frankly, a very, very, very damning legacy that is only recently becoming a little more complex in very, very limited cases. Everyone's like, Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele, and okay, but like, where are all of these other people that are supposed to by now have grabbed the reins of multimedia and making, you know? The point is, it's hard to own presence in the mediascape, and that is a place where media brokers fight. And the fact of the matter is, every argument is biased. All arguments are biased, and, and wielding this just at the humanities neglects the fact that you cannot ask any other question in science without taking a perspective. Like, what time is it? It depends. Is this heavy? It depends. Or is this fast? It totally depends. Those are not it. But if we situate ourselves in a position, then we can answer that question. Okay, but what if I'm in another position? Who's right? We're both right. But those realities contradict. It's complicated. And that's what we're looking at in critical theory are these complex realities where things can be and not be at the same time. And personally, as a man, I'll say I, too, thought feminists hated men. And now, as a man, I'm telling you, as a debate coach, that's fragile. It's not true. Feminists have done more to benefit the experiences of men if we would just do the reading than pretty much anyone I can name. Um, what are you going to have to unpack that for Yeah, me. have done more for the benefit of men. Jackson Katz is a really good example. He's got a series called Tough Guys, uh, G-U-I-S-E. And the most famous is Tough Guys 2. He's dated. The references are dated in the movie. Uh, but you can get it at most local libraries for free. It's awesome. And he shows, in particular, what he calls toxic masculinity. There's hegemonic masculinity. There's ideal masculinity. There's toxic masculinity. If you play D&D, you can have them all in one character or just go all in on one. Uh, but the point is, there's only certain ways to be a man. And if you don't fit into one of those boxes, we will beat you. We will beat you. 
We will name call you. You will be punished. You will be disciplined. Your father will do this. Your friends will do this. Your mom's going to do this. We will do it in ways that disparage women and disparage anything that's not masculine. And toxic masculinity in Katz's terms are do not speak, just act. The body will absorb and distribute a tremendous amount of violence. Um, uh, toxic masculinity is going to situate a lot on accomplishment. You must be the best at everything that you do. Second best is the first loser said no fear in the 90s. Remember no fear? I don't know. Not enough no fear right now. There's I was thinking uh, diatribe. Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> there you go, right? If you're not first, you're last. Ricky Bobby updates my files on this one. Um, uh, to toxic masculinity has all of these different steps. And in it, when you read that, is a way to say, this is not a person that I want to be, and yet, this is who I'm being taught to become. If you look at education, if you look at entertainment, if you look at news, you can find critical scholars being like, this is informing what a man is. This is informing idealized performances in a lot of ways. Like, it's weird. Men are no good at talking about their feelings. It's almost like in every movie or most movies that we see, when they do that, they're told not to. Like, Rudy doesn't make the—I'm doing sports movies now. That's my new thing. Rudy doesn't make the team, and he cries. And I'm like, I don't know that I've seen a lot of men just weeping about not getting what they want. They're usually punching a locker and walking out upset, and that's a very different kind of performance. And who you are and the kinds of performances that you embody can be spontaneous and impulsive things, but critical education tells us we can also ask questions about who we want to become. And as a man that wants to do less harm in the world, that wants to understand different perspectives than my own, um, I look to folks like Jackson Katz and Michael Kimmel to be like, when am I doing the thing? When am I responsible for this behavior? And they give me that vocabulary. And that's what Katz's work is all about. If you research the guy, he's not just making movies and writing articles. He's doing these trainings where he goes around and talks with men about, like, where they learned it's okay to punch things. Like, where did we learn it's okay to punch things? And why do we punch things, you know? And these are questions that most people will not get unless they go find a therapist, and, and which is something I wish more people felt like they could do and had access to and could afford. Um, but it's meaningful work. that. When people are like, feminists just hate men, they're not speaking to this work in my mind. Because Katz doesn't hate men. He hates men that will be violent without asking why they're being violent. He hates men that interrupt women all the time. Men just interrupt women all the time. Men talk longer than women. They speak before women. They interrupt women. They speak in declaratives. And on and on and on and on and on. And on one hand, I guess we could say none of that matters. And on the other hand, I'm like, am I interrupting too many women? Maybe I'm interrupting too is, many. Isn't that, isn't some of that tied to just our predisposition and the differences in the sexes that women are more predisposed to be more agreeable, whereas men are predisposed to act quicker towards violence, that these are just inherent things and in the differences in our sexes? One of the fun questions I love about my work is that it really sits on the intersection between what we'll call biology and culture. Part of my perspective is that I'm not sure that there is a difference. Between men and women? Between biology and culture. Um, we do know that gender binarism is very complicated and the idea that men are essentially men and women are essentially women. And this is essentially a difference. Again, here, the name is Judith Butler. If, if you want to disprove this argument that they're like Judith Butler says that men and women are gender categories that are cultural. 
and that the sex categories that we create for the two are categorical and they're based on the appearances of bodies. And that's not an essential thing. That's an inherently subjective question. Is it a penis or not is a fairly straightforward question in most cases, but in very predictable numbers of cases, it's a complex question. And whether or not someone is a man or a woman is going to swing on whether or not that is named as a penis or a vagina. And if someone can disprove Judith Butler, they can have her office at Berkeley, and it is a nice office. So you should do that if you have the answer. But as of right now, what I will tell you is that there are fundamental differences of body types, and historically we have named those differences as male and female, and masculine and feminine. And those do describe differences in the ways that we perform and appear. But what I love about culture and our body is how malleable each of them are. When you look at especially the brain, it is plastic as heck. It is constantly changing just in the short term based on how you use it. Paul Bakke read his research about people who lose their sight and use physical touch to see a visual image. Like their eyes are destroyed and they attach a camera with sensors on their skin that their brain turns into a visual image. It's not the same as sight, but it is now vision. The brain is, quote, thirsty for sense. If it is sensible, the brain is going to understand it. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. It just has to be sensible. Is there a face in your toast? No. Do you see a face in your toast? Yes, you do, because your brain has made sense of a face in your toast the brain changes depending on how we use it. Cab drivers in London have a hippocampus that's beefy because they're doing spatial reasoning that none of us are doing just to get from here to there. Manhattan, it's a grid. It's just up and down straight lines. There you go. But London is this thorn's nest and you have to pass this impossible test to become a cab driver. And so their hippocampus is beefy. And to me, I cannot imagine a world where that is true and histories of particularly settler colonialism saying, be this kind of man or else, be this kind of woman or else, and Foucault is like, we will burn you to death in public. That cannot have no impact. That has to change the way our bodies emerge over time and form and shape. Are men and women different in the way they communicate biologically? It's a tough question to answer when we're sitting on 200 years of history saying women should be seen and not heard. That's just hard to answer, you know? At what point do we start changing structurally to just be that way because we're a woman, you know, or a man? And at what point does that change if we're labeled something that does not speak to our performance, you know? And what kind of discipline comes with that? That can be real. I mean, demeaning and possibly dehumanizing for a lot of people. It's a question that is very understandable, but a lot more complicated than people think. Well, I think we go back into the realm of the subjective and objective in that as well, right? The subjective experience of what does it mean to be a woman and what does it mean to be a man? And then the objective stance of do you have a penis or do you have a vagina? It's... I mean, there's nothing, the, Butler's point is there's nothing objective about that question, is that it really is a category question. It, and it's and, all subjective on culture. Well, it's, a, it's, it's subjective on the person looking at the genitalia and giving it a name. And then we're going to bicker about whether my name or your name is the right name. And at the end of the day, we're going to be like, that's who's right. And that See, isn't that part of where a lot of the anger towards critical theory stems from, is people feel as though we're, we're just deconstructing these these 
truths that were held or truths that we all acknowledged as truths and we're now trying to deconstruct what those truths are like we have this foundation and now we're trying to break away that foundation in place of something that we're not entirely sure of what it is because it's so subjective we These have objective no idea. things are now subjective yeah no it's true i mean a big part of critical theory is cracking away at traditional structures of power and that is stuff that we care about you know like I've had to ask really myself very, very critical questions and change my own behavior. Giving up football was a really difficult one for me, uh, you know, to try to align myself with wanting to be a kind of a person. You and, gave up football? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it was too masculine? Because of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But um, the public subsidizes the destruction of the brains of young men and boys, and we celebrate it very, very uncritically in ways that really make me angry. And when I say that football does this, I'm called the bad guy and I'm told I don't like football and all the things that debate land will say are very predictable, but no one can disprove me on the research that says that like one season of high school football is like 417, 10 G hits to the head. That's pretty crazy. That if I said that debate was going to take people out and hit them once on the head to the tune of 10 G's a day, every day of the week and twice on Sundays, they'd put me away. There's no way I would get any funding for debate or anything like that. You know, the football team here in town was $300,000 under. And when they closed it, the public raised $30,000 overnight to bring it back. When the, you know, the debate team was canceled, we needed 8,000 bucks. And we've been here since 1933 and nobody showed up to say anything about that. Our culture fixates on football in ways that are really fascinating to me. Football culture is so interesting. And as a huge Cleveland Browns fan for far too many years, I understand the allure. Believe me, you have to love the thing if you're a Browns fan because they're not giving you anything else to love. Big fan. I'm not watching them right now. You know, it's like that was hard for me to chip away at that. My dad grew up in Akron and the Cleveland baseball team is very important to him. And I learned that I have to start telling him that that is racist every time I see him because it is. And they are the Guardians now, and they should have been the Spiders, but I'm pumped that they're the Guardians. But that means every time I listen to them, they're still evoking that old name. And there's research that says that when you do that, you hurt the self-image of indigenous youth. And this has been replicated, and that is not subjective. Is an indigenous youth being impacted by an indigenous mascot subjective? It only impacts the indigenous youth, so it's only subjective to them. But the research proves that it happens across the country because we have these mascots all over the place. So we can do this research all over the place. And the question is, is that subjective? Yes and no. If you are an indigenous youth, it has an effect. Subjective. If you are an indigenous youth anywhere at all, it has an effect. Not subjective. Structural. That's what it takes to be critical theory. And that's what we're after. We're not trying to just destroy all men. We're trying to destroy the men that destroy the world, frankly. There's a certain kind of man that is very, very uncritical and that does tremendous damage. And frankly, the reason we pick on men is because society historically has valued that. We should not be surprised. Look at Christopher Columbus. Look at all the people that we've celebrated. Andrew Jackson. Look at our heroes, you know? If you want a nice white general from the North, Robert Gould Shaw. Like, we could pick any of them. And the point is simply, Jackson Katz is like, this is what made them heroic. And we replicate that in ways that cause harm. And if you want to unlearn that, here is the vocabulary. That's all it is. Do you attribute any importance to the idea that those are the people that got us here today, though? 
that there's value in that. <laughs> I want to attribute both sides of that equation. One, those are the people that brought us here. Two, those are the people that brought us here. Okay? It's like, on the one hand, I want to be happy about the life that I have because I have a good life and I like it. On the other hand, I live on stolen land and that came at the expense of genocide. We keep coming back to that idea and that's prominent yeah. in your book as well as the idea of stolen land. Yeah, it was. What, is that, what does that mean for you? It means that there were 20 million people on a continent and they got civilized. And we all know what that means. It means they were removed from their land. They were earmarked for destruction from the very beginning. This was not a clash of civilizations. They didn't go to Europe. We came here. And number one, we took the land. Number two, we renamed the land. Number three, we destroyed their culture. If we found their writing, we burned it. We destroyed it because it is a threat to the settler society. If it's not Christianity, it burns in public. We will celebrate this, sing songs about it, write whole sermons about it. Like, we have to own both sides of this, you know? I freaking love Christmas music. I can't get over how much I love Little Drummer Boy. And at the same time, there's a history there, man, you know, that is violent and bloody and, and that does not want to get looked at. And I think that when people are like, you know, this is what made America great, we have to realize that that speaks to patriots, but also non-patriots alike. And both people deserve a seat at the table when it comes to critical thinking. There's nothing objectively great about the American experiment. I'll celebrate so many of the things that we've done, but I don't think that there's anything that is objectively great about us. As a debate person, I'm deeply suspicious of claims like that. You know, <laughs> it's messy. I want a bigger picture version of who we are. You don't think there's anything unique, though, about the American experiment? I mean, no, not really. Most uh, settler colonialism, a lot of it is, most of it is theft. Like, look at representative government. That's a really good example. Look at what liberty means before we come to the so-called new world. And after we get to the new world, liberty just completely changes. And it's not because some dude sitting in a room in Europe is like, I have conceived of an idea. It's because people came and saw a bunch of people in the Amazon that didn't have to work for food because they literally engineered a grocery store that was so big it could never be eaten. Like, 1492 says the Amazon rainforest was probably genetically engineered from the ground up to be edible. There's just not enough poisonous plants when they're supposed to be. There's absolutely an overabundance of food that can be eaten that just does not belong. Like, where did this come from? And the logic makes a lot of sense for people to be like, well, if it's edible, we can grow it. And if it's not edible, kill it. And basically, that's your job. And you get to eat forever for free. That's liberty, man. That's... You know, this new world of, like, like the primal man that lived before government. You know, that's that vocabulary. That's where that came from. And on the one hand, I consider myself a patriot because I support and believe in the ideals of America. But on the other hand, I'm a critical thinker, and I'm not blind to what those ideals entail and where they came from. But don't, again, don't you think that ties back into human history? The idea of conquering, taking land, displacing the people that were there. I mean, haven't we done that since there were people? The settler colonial experiment is very unique in the United States. It is very, very unique. Um, in terms of? Um, well, number one, in terms of the way that warfare was carried out. Uh, total destruction and total warfare is a really good example of this. Viking raids are one thing. A permanent Viking establishment that scrapes the continent clean, that's something totally different. Yeah, but weren't... 
wasn't it something like 90, maybe you can pull this up, Andy, 90 something percent of Native Americans were wiped out by disease? Yeah, absolutely. And I think disease was weaponized in a lot of ways. I have heard that argument, but to my understanding, there's no evidence backing that they knew there were diseases on those. There's literally orders from United States generals and like, like departments of defense being like, they are incredibly susceptible to this and we will lose this many soldiers to get it there and they will lose this many people as a result. And we weren't coming here for nothing. It's not like we were coming here and being like, what's going on? Great. Oh, did I get you sick? I'm sorry. We were coming here to live, to live. Me and my friends show up in your living room. We sit down. We start making food. You're like, would you please get out of my living room? We're like, no, actually, we're civilizing your living room. You need to go be quiet somewhere or we're going to eradicate you. Uh, And if you get violent, we definitely eradicate you. And suddenly you start getting sick and then you die. And we're like, disease, man, it's terrible. Or you think that was intentional, that the blanket theory is that... Intentional or unintentional, it's a byproduct of settler colonialism. Yeah, but doesn't that play... If we're if we're looking at subjective experiences, doesn't that come into play? Of if I give you this blanket in good faith and then it wipes out 90-something percent of your population? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there'd be a real question about the question of that good faith. And I think there'd be reason to beg those questions. And I think that when it comes to the vocabulary of settler colonial warfare, it's explicit. Uh, It is one of complete annihilation, of removal, of reprogramming, of um, the use of fire. That's another one that a lot of people will point at. Immolation in the settler colonial project is fairly extravagant. Uh, We set fire to whole villages and things. Uh, We still do this in a lot of ways. Academics will point out. The American experiment will. And people will be like, Vikings burned things too. And it's here the historians are like, there are fundamental differences though. And those differences really matter. Settler colonialism, most importantly, was industrialized. It was industrialized. It was a wholesale mercantile product that involved the legacies of enslavement. You know? Like, that's not South Africa. (laughs) That's not what South Africa's doing. That's not where Jerusalem came from. Australia doesn't have that story. You know? They're all settler colonial states in their own way with their own legacies. But when it comes to manifest destiny and what that meant and what that entailed, both from a religious standpoint and if we can believe in a non-religious standpoint in the United States from a purely secular standpoint, that was the, that was the point. That was the goal. Did you find anything on the blankets? Yeah, I'm curious. I'm interested in that. Okay. Um, yeah, talk about the old blankets. Yeah, well, I'm just because in my understanding, I've talked to a lot of people and the Native yeah. American thing comes into play a lot. Yeah, And it always seems that we are honing our vision on the play between the United States and the Native Americans, but we neglect human history past that point of the Ottoman Empire, of the Roman Empire, the wiping out of the Celts. I mean, yeah. Genghis Khan. We go back, and it's a tale of, of human history because humans commit these atrocities. And if Genghis Khan had, like, settled the world, I'd want to talk about that, man. You wouldn't want to talk about that? I would. Oh. He, well, he tried. I mean, right. they, but, but, they would talk but did about... He? Did, did he manifest he, that destiny? But did I mean, we conquer the world? L- look at us, man. We, we, we own an entire continent. We've got military uh, outposts literally all over the world. We've got the largest nuclear arsenal on the planet, second maybe to Russia, if their nukes could fly. Like, you know, like, we're the preeminent authority in culture. Like, look at Hollywood in its imprint. When uh, the... Dambusters came out, which was a huge movie in Great Britain. 80% of the film going public was watching American movies at the time in the UK. 80%. And that was the 50s, you know? That's when 
Britain is supposed to have its own media, but, you know, Madison Avenue was like the power broker of what it means to be a man for a long time. And Genghis Khan is important, and we will talk about him. No one's saying don't study Genghis Khan. We're like, also, though, America, right? Like, also the United States of America? Let's talk about that. Genghis Khan killed so many people, he changed the carbon footprint of the planet. Yeah, we did, too. They used to talk. Yeah, but he, <laughs> they used to talk about, I think it was one of our conquests where somebody was traveling maybe somewhere around China, yeah. and they saw this white mound. It looked like a yeah. mountain in the distance, and it was human bones. Yeah. Can you imagine if the guy had nuclear weapons? We do. That would be crazy. Well, yeah, but you can't. <laughs> and we've used them twice. I don't know if you can create a dis <laughs> or create a comparison between how we are run today versus how Genghis Khan was. Well, run my back then. My, my point is, I think we emphatically must how, make how, that connection. Yeah, he's one guy that lasted for one generation of his life, and the legacies are profound and impactful. Talk about that, definitely. What is America? What is it? Where did it come from? What does it mean? What does it mean to be an American? You know? And you don't think that attributes to every nation? That idea of those same ideas of I would how hope did so. it come here? I would hope so. I wanted to. That's my point. And I, think it's, I, I don't think it's the same story for every nation at all. I think they're all very different. And I think that the legacies, again, if you read Veracini's work, he talks about settler colonialism all over the world. And for him, he tries to distill a couple very generic like questions about what unites all of the settler colonial experiments that we see. But, you know, the American version of it is profoundly successful. You know, Dunbar Ortiz says we celebrate the 4th of July without a hint of tragedy. And if you bring it up, you're yelled at. That's weird if you're an indigenous person, because the 4th of July, according to like Grizzling Baldy, that's the end of the world in a lot of ways for Indigenous Don't you think folks. the British kind of feel bad about that, too? I would hope so. They better. <laughs> <laughs> Got their asses in the What do you have here, Andy? The determination of whether a historical event should or should not be considered a genocide can be a matter of scholarly debate. Historians often draw on broader definitions such as Lemkins, which sees colonialist violence against indigenous peoples as inherently genocidal. For example, in the case of the colonization of the Americas, where the indigenous people of the Americas declined by up to 90% in the first centuries of European colonization. Yeah, but see if they intentionally, or see if they knew about the spreading of diseases. If that, did you already have that pulled up here? Wait, wait, go back for a sec. When the Europeans arrived carrying germs which thrived in dense semi-urban populations, the indigenous people of the Americas were effectively doomed. They had never experienced smallpox, measles, or flu before, and the viruses tore through the continent, killing an estimated 90% of Native Americans. Yeah, see if you can find if they, if they knew that back then. Does it matter? I think so. You don't think, yeah. so, you don't think it, it makes the, the, a difference? My problem with that telling, that particular telling that we just got, and I'm trying to see where we're reading it from, uh, PBS, like. This is a good example, right? PBS is a lefty site. One of the things we see about settler colonialism is that it's always framed in the past tense and described in the past tense, and it's always framed very passively. Passive framing is like talking about sexual violence instead of like toxic masculinity. Very different way of framing violence. Yeah, but don't you think those are two different things? I do. I do. And I think it's important to talk about the specifics, you know? And if we're talking about like violence against men, it's like 70% of dudes perpetrate that stuff or 80% of dudes perpetrate that stuff. But let's stay on point with this because I think that 
here when it says when the Europeans arrived, when the Europeans arrived. But what happened? Why did they come here? When they arrived, what happened before that? Why are they here? What are they doing here? How do they view the people that live on this land, that have generations of connections to this land? That is both a complex question and a fairly asymmetrical one. It is complex in that we have a lot of people that are basically fleeing persecution themselves. Settler colonialism pits very desperate people against other desperate people. That is a fundamental hallmark of, ask Australians, they know all about that, right? Like most of the people that were sent there were not wanting to move to Australia. Um, the point is that they're still settlers though, and they still see themselves as different from the so-called bestial people, godless people, heathenly people, even the liberals at the time will describe them as a simpler people. You get it? These are people that can predict eclipses way better than we can. We're still burning people for saying that the world is round, and they're like, no, actually, the universe is a big wheel. Um, it's like there was a very asymmetrical perspective that brought that collaboration of people together. Disease, it's not a question of whether disease was weaponized. Again, we have written generals written Department of Defense people saying they are especially susceptible to these illnesses. We know that soldiers carry them. Blankets are a great way to solve problems when it comes to, like, solving the problem. You get it? It's like the point does not have to be a bunch of people saying, let's weaponize a, a bioweapon of war. It can be mere convenience. It's just basic convenience to be like, we're not as susceptible as they are, which means all of our blankets are deadly to them, you know? And if I came to your house and the story just said, when Aaron showed up, Nick got really sick and it was just the disease that killed him, man, you're going to be like, he came to my house uninvited. He did not belong. He acted like he owned the place and like I was an idiot for keeping things where I kept it. And then I got sick and died. You know, and when I realized you were sick, I was like, dang, man, you, you get re hit real hard by this flu. I don't know. Like germs, germs did it. That's not an accountable telling. I'm I'm ready to accept a world where a bunch of people did not know any better and gave people blankets that they did not think would kill them. I also want to accept a world where a bunch of militarists are sitting around being like this absolutely works and it saves us a bunch of troops. And there's a world out there that's like, let's not look at that part, though. And I don't know why we would ignore that part. It doesn't make any sense. And just by bringing it up, I'm told I'm fixating on it. And I'm like, no, I literally am just mentioning that that's part of that story. It's, it's a big story of how it works. And just real quickly to touch on the definition of genocide, because that was something that you read. And yeah, that popped up. As a debate coach, I think this is important. What we call things really, really matters. And which definition we use is an important question for debate. You get it? Like, whose definition of rhetoric am I going to use? We started this podcast with that because that's really important. If you read Foucault, you're going to come to the Alien Movie Project looking for a very different set of issues than I am. But I do think we're both going to come back asking questions about settler colonialism because Foucault's asking questions about discipline and punishment. And, who, and Hooks is asking questions about, like, what's a man and what's a woman? And weirdly, those questions intersect. They come together, and we learn things about that. And that's what critical theory is. When it comes to whether or not the settler colonial project in America is a genocide, it meets every test that the UN describes as a genocide. We remove people from the land. We occupy that land indefinitely. We're not staying here temporarily. It's not an outpost, right? 
We deny them their sovereignty unless you pay the we ought honor tax here and things like that. You get it? You're not giving the real sovereignty to the people that um, inhabited the land. Most importantly, most importantly, we have an explicit project of erasing a culture, an explicit project of banning dances, banning writing, kidnapping children, sending them to school. Canada is reconciling with this right now, but we are not. The same technology that's bringing up all of those graves in Canada is going to find very similar graves here, you know? And indigenous people did not do that on a systematic level ever, anywhere. That just well, didn't we, happen. I mean, violence was definitely... Absolutely, but let's definitely not... Definitely native across but all cultures. Yes, but, but here too is where we'll make an example with like, you know, like war. Like what is war and what does war mean? And historians will say that the American brand of war is called total war. We call it total war. And the reason it has a name is because it, it's historically somewhat different. Warfare among indigenous folks was a question of like pride. It was a question of boundary making. It was never a question of complete annihilation. One of the huge things that marked the difference between settler colonial warfare and indigenous warfare, we can read it on both sides of the story here, is that we will wipe out their entire village. But that's not entirely accurate because, I mean, just a case off the top of the, my head, I mean, the Romans sought to wipe out the Celtic. Sure. Like that was a war of annihilation. They yeah. wiped them, Absolutely. Ev everything about them off the face Absolutely. of the earth. Like, that and was so I think intentional. There, so I think there we could draw correlates to what happened, right? We could, but, but the indigenous populations of the Americas, so far as we know, so far as what I've read, there's no example of a group of people wiping out each other's whole villages the way that we did when we came to set up Cincinnati or Helena, Montana. You might be Montana. able to make, I would argue that there probably are cases where they wiped out neighboring tribes. I mean, the Aztecs for sure I did mean, that. The Aztecs for sure did that. Um, and the okay. Native American tribes, but the Native American <laughs> tribes were war, warring tribes. Absolutely. The idea that they didn't or Absolutely. wouldn't try to wipe and the, out. And, and, and when you look at the Aztec empire, I think, uh, you know, we could make a really fascinating, uh, correlation here with regards to how we maintain power and how it works and uh you know we're over time here uh and a ways from alienhood but it's a fun question but what i really want to say that i think is really really important is that that none of this is a question of speculation it is just a question of what actually happened but how do we like, know what actually happened because in some regard because we can read the sermon we can read the sermon, we can read the dispatch, we can read the newspaper, we can read the storybook, we can, I mean, these are all the artifacts that we have, and we can see where they position people. And we can literally study the same thing from the other side if we listen, you know, if we listen to the existing peoples that carry those stories forward and talk about what came, and if we believe them, you know, like, that takes a real leap because they tend to not have any of the evidence that we demand because it was destroyed. And that makes it really hard for them to make their case in the land of empirical court, you know? And so critical theory has to have a world where it's like, how do you judge a debate without evidence when one side literally annihilated the other side's evidence on purpose? How do you weigh that fairly? That's a tough question to be objective about. You know, there has to be a vulnerable seat at the table that has some degree of good faith, especially with the asymmetry that we see in terms of storytelling and power structure, structures, you know? And that's what we're looking for. And no critical theorist claims to be the be-all, end-all. I think that's really important to say. Bell Hooks says, or sorry, Butler says, like, there's no monolithic gender. There's no better woman, better man. No critical scholar has a solution. She calls her book Gender Trouble, 
because all we get is trouble and all we want to do is name it and learn how it works so that if we can we can if we want to we can apply it to ourselves just to wrap that up yeah did you find anything on the blankets there any or the uh this was more about things that they had brought along with them different uh diseases etc did you find anything saying that they nothing actively engaged in biological warfare um this kind of touches on that a little bit what you have highlighted here yeah the arrival and settlement of Europeans in the Americas resulted in what is known as the Columbian Exchange. During this period, European settlers brought many different technologies, animals, plants, and lifestyles with them, some of which benefited the indigenous peoples. Europeans also took plants and goods back to the old world. Potatoes and tomatoes from the Americas became integral to European and Asian cuisines, for instance. But Europeans also unintentionally brought new infectious diseases, including smallpox, bubonic plague, chickenpox, cholera, the common cold, diphtheria, influenza, Wow, malaria, measles, scarlet fever, STDs, with the possible exception of syphilis, typhoid, typhus, tuberculosis, although a form of this infection existed in South America prior to contact. The infections brought by Europeans are not easily tracked since there were numerous outbreaks and all were not equally recorded. Historical accounts of epidemics are often vague or contradictory in describing how victims were affected. Because a lot of that information was destroyed. What does it mean that STDs is included, but not a legacy of, um, you know, like rape, where breeding indigenous people away was a systematized solution in some American colonies, where women are abducted, like, like, like Genghis Khan, man, that guy's like the STDs. Let's just talk about the STDs of Genghis Khan, you know, like. If we just fixated on the STDs and not what the dude did, <laughs> that would not be the whole story. And the Wikipedia article that y'all brought up, I think, is an interesting one in the passive framing of settler colonialism. Again, it's very passively framed. It's like it's a good example of crowdsourced knowledge, right? Like crowdsource and peer review are two very different ways to accumulate knowledge. And as a debate coach, I want all of it. But let's make sure that we understand the methodology and where the vocabulary comes from, you know? To be like they brought a lot of stuff, a lot of which benefited indigenous people, is kind of, again, burying the lead. They came here to civilize a people, to take land, occupy space, replace existing traditions. You get it? Like, that, that was true for everybody. That was true for my ancestors. It was true for the people that came here to make a new life for themselves. But, but make a new life on what? In Man of Steel, they account for the Kansas people, but not in. We, we don't want to ask that prior question of who was here before and what it took to make that new life. Do you think that white people today are still somewhat responsible for that? For I think people living in this country. I think whiteness is an ongoing form of systematic, like systematic privilege, and that I benefit from that in a lot of ways, and that I want to know about that. And that if I'm completely ignorant to it, that the very explicit forms of it are able to go on completely unchecked without me trying to interrupt it, you know? Like, whiteness takes on a lot of different forms. You can be a very well-meaning white liberal lady who cries as soon as she's confronted and has never thought about the privilege of that position. And you can be a white lady that supports the KKK and wants to, like, literally kill people and, you know, remove them and things. They both speak for whiteness, you know? And I think that I would say that because of the legacies of whiteness within settler colonial storytelling in particular, we're all still on the hook, for sure. 
You know, like I did not do any of that, but I'm benefiting from it. And the least I can do is want to know more about it. What do you make of the argument that people make where they say, oh, I'm, I wasn't there. I wasn't alive back then. It's not my fault. Why should I be suffering consequences because of that? Well, they're not, they're not really suffering consequences besides feeling bad about the conversation. Those are the consequences that they're suffering. And a debate coach is like, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. It's hard. Um, you know, but it's like you weren't there is a very good way of passing off the blame. You know, a lot of times that's kind of a mark of being a criminal. <laughs> you should have been there. We weren't born, so that doesn't work. But there's times where it's like, well, maybe you should have been there. Maybe you should show up now. It's a question of, you know, whose traditions do you celebrate and what are the, the histories of those traditions? And are you just prepared to be accountable for those traditions, especially considering that the people who lived before that are still here? You know, Veroncini says we talk about settler colonialism in the past, and it is not the past. It's happening right now. It is under our feet at this very moment, you know. And, um, you know, we can't make, do it over. We can't make it go away. We aren't setting out to make all these people feel bad. We're just saying this is the recipe. This is how it describes itself. You know, good aliens are like this. Good Indians are like this. Bad aliens are like this. Bad Indians are like this. And action. And we're going to do that across 100 years of movie making or more. And millions of people all over the world, billions sometimes, are going to get infatuated with these movies in ways that culminate. You know? I don't know. It's, it's not a question of making people feel bad, though. And I, I worry when people frame it that way. Because it's like, why again, why do you feel bad? You know? And how bad is that compared to not knowing this past and this history? Tying back into your book one last time, and we can end it on this because I think this is a very poignant part of your story, is, if I can, if I can find it. Um, I, wrote, I wrote so much. I was really invested in your book. I, was, I would totally come was, back and talk more we'll about the bigger to, yeah, picture I was stuff for sure. I the whole thing. It. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. Good. I'm glad. I was thankful to have you come on. It was interesting yeah. having you reach out. Yeah. Um, and this is another pull from your book. Actually, I believe it's from, I want to say the first chapter. It is that many may even have stopped reading by now or are continuing to read feeling targeted, maybe even angry mm -hmm. because of a perception that this is this lowly introduction is a reversed racist or hates white people. But there can be a new hope. Critical thinking can be fun. It can also be transformative. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be just ending on this, that yeah. recurring idea that this the white narrative, the white privilege the colonial settler aspect of life is apparent whether you choose to acknowledge it or not, that this is an underlying theme. If you don't want to recognize that, that's on you, but it is there. Would I, you say that's... I love that. I love that, you know? It's like, I love that you mentioned tomatoes. You know, my family's Italian, and I tell people tomatoes are not Italian. That's a legacy of colonialism. That's a legacy of bringing something back and making culture out of something. And everyone's like, oh, but that's, it's like intrinsically Italian. And it's like, Italians are intrinsically colonialists. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I want to eat my pizza and not think of it as a legacy of colonization. But also critical thinking is like, it is though. And that can be threatening, but it doesn't have to be. And um, in the book, I talk about the fifth element. I talk about Star Wars. I talk about movies I've loved, Contact, you know, that I've loved my whole life. 
And um, when I'm able to look at them through these critical lenses, I, in the book I say, I feel like I'm engaging with my media much more directly. I still love these movies. I still watch these movies. But at least I can name what's in it. We know what's in our Doritos. We eat the Doritos. At least we know what's in the Doritos, you know? And that's all critics are trying to do with your media. It's just to say, like, this, we're pretty sure this is in there. We've run as many studies as we can in the best capacities as we can, and it ain't chemistry. But chemists cannot put freedom in a bottle. And until they can, we're the only answer you got, you know? So I do think it's fun, and I, and I appreciate that closing. I think it's a good, good way to end it. Well, Aaron, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Nick. Do you want to plug where people can find you, where they can find the book? Yeah, the book is on Kendall Hunt, um, the Kendall Hunt webpage. It's an ebook. It's uh, I want to say it's like sixty bucks, and you get it for one hundred and eighty days, and it's like ninety bucks if you want to buy it physically. I tell people the price of the book is the price of putting something on the printer. My book is not worth ninety dollars, but the book you have to take off the printer to put my book onto the printer is worth ninety dollars. And so, if you want to print my book, you're gonna pay ninety dollars, and I'm not gonna get very much of it at all. But um. Yeah, the Alien Movie Project can be found at alienmovieproject.com. Uh, my new version of this research going into the, the war story is the Real War Project, R-E-E-L War Project. That's on Spotify right now. There's a Fields of Glory podcast coming about sports pretty soon, but it's not. We're editing. Editing, man. I hate it. I don't it's ever want to edit again. It is a time <laughs> suck. I put so many sound effects in my episodes, man, and those take some time. <laughs> they really do. Yeah. Okay, well, Aaron, I really, I really enjoyed sitting down with you. It was a fun conversation. This was fun. Thank you both very much for having me. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks.